Welcome to Tennessee Court Talk. I'm your host, Barbara Peck, and today we are discussing civil pattern jury instructions. This podcast is intended for legal audiences, including judges, lawyers, and law students. We have two guests with us today. The first is retired Judge Butch Childers. Judge Childers spent more than 30 years on the trial bench in the 30th Judicial District, which includes Shelby County and Memphis. He spent more than 25 years as the chair of the Tennessee Judicial Conference Pattern Jury Instructions Civil Committee. He still currently serves on the committee. Mr. John Day is a Nashville attorney who is one of two attorneys on the committee. He has been a trial attorney for more than 30 years and has tried jury cases in federal and state courts across Tennessee. He is the author of four books and numerous peer-reviewed journal articles. Welcome to you both. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So my first question for both of you is last year in the state of Tennessee, there were 226 civil jury trials, 167 of which had no damage awards, and 59 had verdicts ranging from $518 to $1.2 million. Have you ever felt that the outcome of a case was affected by the jury instruction? Judge Childers? Yeah, Barbara, I like to tell a story about a case uh, just a few years after I came on the bench, and I would go out in the hallway sometimes outside of the courtroom to, after I thanked the jurors in court and discharged them, I'd go out and shake the jurors' hands and and talk to them about their experiences serving on a jury. And this lady came up to me, and I shook her hand, and and, uh, I said, did you enjoy your experience, ma'am? And she said, Judge, honestly, I didn't. But I, and I have to tell you that we, we paid attention to your instructions, and even though I wasn't happy about the verdict we reached, I thought it was the right verdict based on the instructions on the law that you gave us. So in, in that respect, it, it affected how the jury decided the case because they paid attention, thank goodness, to the court's instructions. Mr. Day, have you ever felt the outcome of a case? Well, I, I think that... In every single jury trial, there are one or more instructions seized on by one or more of the lawyers, and they tend to emphasize those in closing argument uh, because they think it will help them get the result. But the first time it, it really hit me and, quite frankly, bit me was in a trial in Warren County in 1984 where um, a lawyer asked for, the defense lawyer, uh, I was the plaintiff's lawyer in that case, asked for and received an instruction of the physical facts rule, which is instruction 2.25, and it basically allows the jury to disregard the testimony of a witness if it is inconsistent with physical facts. It's a very, very powerful instruction, and and quite frankly, the lawyer did an excellent job utilizing it and weaving it through his closing argument, and I think turned the case. So do jury instructions make a difference? Well, they should, and I think they do. Excellent. So let's talk about the work of the committee a little bit. Um, the, the civil com- the committee publishes new and updated pattern instructions every fall. So Judge Childers, tell us a little about the committee and its mission. What are you trying to accomplish every year when you're publishing the new instructions? The mission, Barbara, is to, to help trial judges primarily, particularly with the newer judges who come on and, and, and aren't used to giving jury instructions and don't know what instructions to give. A lot of states have pattern jury instructions. And so in the mid-70s, Chancellor John Templeton, uh, Chancellor in Shelbyville, 
was uh, interested in, and came up with the idea of having pattern instructions for civil cases and for criminal cases. And so the, the idea was to help the trial judges, but it also helps the trial bar across the state as well to be able to go to the instructions and, and, and use those uh, and instead of having to sort of reinvent the wheel, I call it, they can go to the, the book, the pattern jury instructions, as a start for, for uh, determining the, the law in a particular area. It's really helpful there, but also in, in, in uh, structuring jury instructions for the juries and jury trials. So the first instructions were developed in 1978, and you joined the committee in 1984 and then went on to chair it for almost 25 years or a little over 25 years. So tell us a little about the history of the jury instructions in Tennessee. As I said, Chancellor John Templeton, uh, I think it was sort of his, uh, his brainchild. Uh, Judge Ed Cole from Knoxville also was on the first committee. Judge Jim Swigert from Nashville. Uh, my uh, mentor in Memphis, Judge Bill O'Hearn, was the chair of the committee for several years. And so it was in the mid-70s when they developed the idea. And then the committee worked for a number of years before they ultimately published the first edition of the pattern jury instructions, the civil instructions, in 1978. That was the first edition. I joined the committee in 1984. A uh, brand-new judge came on the bench September 1, 1984, and, and I looked at the committees that were available in the Judicial Conference and looked at the Pattern Jury Instruction Committee and, and not thinking, uh, believing I didn't know a whole lot about the law, I decided this was a good way for me to learn more about the law and be on the cutting edge of the law, and so I decided to join the committee. So shortly after I came on the committee, uh, the chair, Judge O'Hearn at the time, decided that we need to look at, at coming up with a second edition of the work. And so we divided, he divided us up into committees. And I worked on, as I recall, chapter six, which is the professional negligence charges, medical malpractice, legal malpractice, that sort of thing. And, and we would then work, uh, each of us, on a particular section. When I came on the bench, the first edition, as, as, as good a start as it was, there were instructions that were one paragraph long sentences. And when I was giving those to the jury, I would watch their eyes glaze over. You know, I had, a, I had four years of undergraduate school and three years of law school, and I didn't understand some of the instructions that I was giving to the jury because of the length of the, of the instruction and the, and the one paragraph long sentences. And so my goal from the start was to shorten those instructions, to make them as succinct and brief as we could in giving them to lay people who hadn't heard a lot of these terms. And so ultimately in 1988, we published the second edition. Well, in, in May of 1992, uh, one of our good members, Judge John Maddox from Cookville, called me. I was still at home getting ready for work that morning, and he said, Butch, have you uh, read the case of McIntyre versus Ballantyne? And I said, well, no, John, I haven't looked at it yet. Well, it just had been pub uh, published the, the day before, came out the day before, where our Supreme Court uh, did away with, uh, with uh, contributory negligence and adopted comparative fault for Tennessee. Uh, just a week after that, the Supreme Court, the Tennessee Supreme Court, decided another case, Hodges versus Tooth, which happened to be a case that that was came out of my courtroom in in uh, in Shelby County, uh, involving punitive damages. But the comparative fault change in Tennessee, the adoption, required us to completely uh, revamp the entire 
uh, work of the pattern jury instructions because of the adoption of comparative fault. So I, sort of like Judge O'Hearn, my mentor, uh, divided up committees in the conference, uh, in the uh, committee, uh, had subcommittees for every sections of the book, contracts, uh, negligence, uh, malpractice, that sort of thing. And each committee looked at the substance of the charge and, and, and worked on making the charges shorter and more succinct and more comprehensible by lay jurors. And then we also appointed what I call what we referred to as the Clarity Subcommittee. And the Clarity Subcommittee looked at every single instruction that was, that was uh, presented by each of the subcommittees. And we tried to make, uh, as much as we could, each instruction gender neutral, where we tried to take out the he or she out of instructions. Yep. Uh, and we also tried to take out some of the complicated legal terms like proximate cause. Uh, I'd tell the jury when I got to that instruction, ladies and gentlemen, I'm saying proximate, not approximate like we're used to hearing, P-R-O-X-I-M-A-T-E, and I'd spell it out. Well, we changed that word to legal cause. It was the very same legal definition, but it was a term that people could understand. We, we changed the word exercise to use instead of exercising reasonable care use reasonable care we change the the, uh, the prudent careful and prudent person to a reasonably careful person that sort of thing to try to make it more understandable we actually used a computer program uh, to try to reach a, an average eighth grade level for for jurors the computer told us we reached the tenth grade level we didn't quite get to, to our goal but we got got uh, better and, and, and so the, the uh, Clarity Subcommittee would make sure that, that in, in making their changes, they didn't change the substance of the charge. The legal substance was the same, but it put it in, in more uh, 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 general everyday language that we use. So the committee itself is part of the Tennessee Judicial Conference, and currently there's 24 members. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's evolved over the years? We've generally had between 20 and 24 judges who have served on the committee. Uh, when we were doing the, the TPI-3 that came in, in 1998, the, the third edition, we called it TPI-3. And, and so lots of work. Every judicial conference, three times a year, the committee spends about three hours. It, it, these 20 to 24 people spend about three hours in doing this work. So there's a lot of hard work involved with it. Uh, in in, 19, in uh, 2004, we decided to go for the civil uh, uh, pattern jury instructions to a softbound volume. Before that, we did a little supplement to the hardbound volume. In 2004, we created a softbound volume like the criminal court judges that the committee had done several years before. And so in 2004, it was the fourth edition, and so it sort of worked out. 2005 was the fifth edition, and now we're in 2019, so we'll have the 19th edition of the pattern, civil pattern jury instructions. Uh, and so we, we look at, we assign the Southwest third reporter series now to each committee member and they review the cases in each volume and then they send a written report to the chair about cases that they found in that uh, volume of, of, uh, of Southwest Third to see if, if there's something the committee needs to look at to either change a comment, a, a use note, uh, or change uh, or modify the substance of an existing instruction or to create a new pattern jury instruction. Mr. Day, when did you first join? I joined in 1992, I believe. Um, 
it was either late 92 or early 1993, um, Judge Childers and the other members of the committee decided that they would like to have uh, help from a couple lawyers. So I was then doing and still am doing plaintiff's work. And then Jim Duran, who's a Nashville lawyer, very prominent and uh, good guy, uh, is a defense lawyer. So we worked together with the uh, committee for, I guess Jim was on the committee, what, Judge, for 23 years? Yes, Jim just retired, so we've got a new member, Art Brock, who is the defense lawyer from uh, Chattanooga. Member. One thing I wanted to add is that in addition to the reading the volumes uh, from uh, Southwest, now third, uh, judges also bring instructions that they've given, that they've developed for a particular case, and they will bring to share with the judges on the uh, committee itself, and many times those will be incorporated into the book. So it's a real sharing uh, among the judiciary trying to advance the ball uh, for their brothers and sisters on the bench. So you mentioned you're, you're really striving for plain English, and there's been quite a few studies out there that show that jurors really struggle with jury instructions and the legalese in those. But how do you balance, as a committee, the desire to have it, the, the instructions in plain English with the need to have it legal precise, legally precise? Have you ever hired a linguist or anyone to work with the committee? It's funny you should mention that, Barbara. I attended a symposium on jury instructions at UT Knoxville. A, a former Judge Penny White is a law professor there, and she organized a symposium on jury instructions and brought in some leading linguists from across the country. I remember there was a guy who had written a book on that. I happened to meet a, an English professor at University of Tennessee, uh, um, um, and I can't remember her name right now, Bethany, Dr. Bethany uh, Dumas, Dr. Bethany Dumas, uh, and, 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 and struck up a conversation with her, and I asked her if she would be available and might want to join the, the Tennessee Pattern Jury Instruction Committee, Civil Committee, and that was her area of interest. And so we got her involved to help her help us put language of instructions in plain English, again, where we don't lose the substance, the legal substance of the instruction, but we put it more in plain English where lay people who, who never have heard, never heard a lot of these terms before, uh, to put it on, in language that they can understand and comprehend. But to be candid, very, very candid, maybe more candid than I should be, there's a constant struggle we have different people on the uh, committee, all of whom are well-meaning, who disagree on this on a regular basis. I am one of the people in the camp that is, let's put the cookies on the low shelf. Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals write for judges and lawyers. They don't write for lay people. But there are other people on the committee, once again, nothing but the best intentions, who believe that we should use the exact words that the appellate courts use. And it is, it's not every single meeting. It did not happen at the meeting we just had this week, but it is a constant back and forth, all good natured, like I said, everybody with the best of intentions. There is a constant tension. Uh, there's no question about that it, it, with the two schools of thought that, oh, we need to use the precise language that the Court of Appeals has given us. And again, the Court of Appeals writes for judges. They don't write for lay people. Uh, and, and, and we've actually got some Court of Appeals judges on our committee. 
So, so we, we enlist their help with this argument as well. So it's funny you should mention that, Mr. Day, because at the committee's meeting this week, one thing that stood out to me was that Judge Corlow had introduced a new instruction that had come from the Court of Appeals, and then through a process of about 15 minutes, we sort of had five or six different suggestions to change that instructions, and he, his position was more... He actually, one of his comments was, okay, every change we do, we're getting further and further from the exact language of the Court of Appeals, but they started to change pro se se litigant to self-represented litigant, and then just tweak after tweak after tweak. So the initial language started from the Court of Appeals, but then by the end, I think there was probably six or seven different amendments to that. I had actually made a suggestion, and that's when he said, well, we're, we're getting away from the language of, of the Court of Appeals now. <laughs> so you see, what that's one school of thought. <laughs> Judge Carlo has been in that school for many years, and there are, are, are others. And we go back and forth. Um, the I wanted to mention that same t- point was the legal cause argument. Judge Childers you know, alluded to that a couple minutes ago, and he he not intentionally glossed over the history. It took five or six years to get that done. <laughs> and it was the su- suggestion of Judge Turnbull out of Livingston, Tennessee, uh, who who helped bring us along. We were, the committee was ahead of the appellate courts in that regard. The appellate courts were still using, and to this day still occasionally use the word proximate cause. But we brought legal cause into the discussion, and uh, it was a good thing. I'll give you a little inside baseball information on that. I actually called Don Payne, Professor Payne, uh, who is now deceased, who was so helpful to us, and I asked his opinion because he's like the expert, the professor. And I said, Don, what do you think about us changing the word proximate in the jury instructions to legal cause. And, and uh, he said, is the definition going to be the same? And I said, absolutely. He said, I don't see any problem at all with it. So that was part of the ammunition that I took to the committee meetings to try to convince the more conservative among our committee that we need to make this change to help jurors understand the instructions. Else, why do you give the instructions? Well, and the problem is this. If they get one goofy word, like proximate, that's a goofy word. They're going to be thinking about the goofy word and not listening to the substance of the charge. Precisely. So it, it is our our job, I think, to put truly put the cookies on the low shelf to help give people stuff they can actually use and won't get hung up on technicalities. Right, so besides the actual language of the ang- or the actual language of the instruction. There's also comments in use notes. So, Judge Shoulders, when were those added, and how have they evolved? The comments came from the start. A lot of the instructions that the original committee used, Judge Swigert informed me some of the history, uh, came from the California pattern instructions. There were other states who already had pattern instructions. And so a lot of them came from California, from New York, uh, and, and, and so... Um, they used comments, and the, and, the, and the purpose of the comments, Barbara, is really to lift language from appellate court decisions that come out that are then helpful to, uh, to, to the judges and lawyers in, in a case where you can't put everything that you possibly need in a particular factual situation, a particular case, in a pattern instruction. 
it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. And so, so it's helpful to judges. I did it myself. And, and if I had a particular factual uh, situation in a, in a case, I could look at the comments and maybe use some language from one of those comments to put into the pattern instruction to modify it to fit the facts of my case. The use notes, on the other hand, and, and John and I, you know, we had debates about what's the difference between a use note and a comment. Comments, generally speaking, are language that come from the cases that are decided by the appellate courts, either immediate or the Supreme Court. Use notes, on the other hand, to me, are for the use of the trial judges primarily when they have a case to say, okay, here's a heads up. You need to use this in a certain way, or if you if you have a certain factual situation, you might want to look at at section two two point five five, you know, and, and give that as well. Uh, and it's just again sort of a heads up to the trial judge or lawyers, but to me mostly for the trial judge use in 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 how to use that pattern instruction. Yeah, and it's we have been. Um, consistently inconsistent in what we've labeled use notes and what we have labeled comments, although we've gotten better in the last decade or so. Uh, we've tried to pay more attention to it, but it's, it's, once again, it's all designed to help the people who are using the book. The comments can be particularly helpful to lawyers and judges who use the book in the second way in which it was intended, not just for jury instructions, but also as you're putting a case together from the standpoint of a lawyer, What's the law going to be at the end of the case? What are the elements of the cause of action? What are the leading cases in the field? So judge, lawyers can go there and see, uh, do a little, get a head start on their research. And that's It's a good research tool, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it can save you a whole lot of time. Judges, particularly, who a lot of them across the state don't have law clerks. I had the benefit of a, of a third-year law student, 20-hour-a-week uh, law clerk in, in Shelby County, but most judges across the state don't have the use of law clerks, and the judge is doing the research. And so again, that's why we put comments in there to help the judge to save time and, and save a lot of work. So how do you decide when a decision comes out whether you need to actually change the instruction or just adjust a comment or a use note? So the, the judge who has that, that uh, part of the Southwest Third and makes that report and suggests that this is a comment from this case that the, the committee needs to look at and discuss. And so part of those three hours worth of meetings come in with the discussion about this comment and whether or not it adds something that we don't already have in the book. You know, you could put hundreds of of comments of citations to cases in and so we try to get the leading cases on the areas and if there's a case that comes out with something just a little bit unusual that we don't already have covered in the comments then we'll vote and we'll put the comment in we, we need to add this it's important and we don't have it already in the book but if the law is changed then we will rewrite the instruction to make it consistent with the current law so it's it's, uh, quite frankly, that happens relatively rarely. I mean, only several times a year is there a true change in substantive law that requires a, a modification of the instruction itself. But there's always a tweak. There's always a special circumstance. And then that's the case that goes to the comments. So let's talk a little bit about actually using using the instructions as a tool. So, Mr. Damon, you're a practicing attorney. So when do you recommend that attorneys open the instructions in a case? 
if you don't know the law, then you need to look at the law before you accept representation in the case, particularly if you're working on a contingent fee, that is you only get paid if you win. But those of us who do, I mean, I do plaintiff's personal injury work. I have a pretty good grasp on the law. I don't need to look at the pattern jury instructions on personal injury law. But if I was taking a case in, let's say it involved bailments or involved some sort of contract issue, I would start there to give me a head start on more comprehensive legal research. That's the, the idea is in most legal research, how do you grab onto a, a handhold? What is there something you can get into the substantive law? And that's what the comments to the uh, charges uh, do. It gives you a head start. So when you're writing your pleadings from the beginning, you're thinking about the jury instructions that will be given at the very end of the trial. You better be, or you'll never get to the end of the trial. You see what I'm saying? If you don't understand substantive law, and this is, a, this is something I speak about quite a bit, the, the, the rules of the game are substantive law and policy uh, the procedures, right? The rules of civil procedure, the rule of evidence. You've got to understand those things uh, when you accept a case and when you're going through the litigation process. Because if you don't, you will get tripped up. John won't tell you this, but but he reads the advance sheets and the rules of procedure and rules of evidence for fun. That's how, his idea of fun. So he knows the law. But I've, I've done hundreds, probably no exaggeration in 33 years as a judge, hundreds of seminars on jury instructions. And what I have always told lawyers, young lawyers and more experienced lawyers, is any case you get in your office, you need to start, in my judgment, my suggestion, with the pattern jury instructions to tell you what you need to prove in your case, either in a bench trial to the judge or in a jury trial. That's the place to start if you want to save yourself a lot of time and a lot of headache and maybe taking on a case that you don't need to take on because it's a losing case is to start with the pattern jury instructions, which is going to tell you exactly what you need to prove in, in again, either a bench trial or a jury trial at the end of the day. So you start from the beginning there. And it just, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a shortcut. It saves you so much time and, and effort in research if you start with those pattern instructions. It's amazing. So are different jury instructions that the committee has developed, are, are they sort of developed to give, be given at different times throughout the trial? And what's your advice on that? When should judges be giving jury instructions? Well, typically, the judge gives some preliminary instructions before the trial begins so the jury sort of understands how the, what the process is going to be, how the procedure is. Now, the last five, oh, probably ten years I was on the bench, I started giving some substantive instructions in the preliminary instructions at the beginning. So the jury would understand from the beginning what it is we're going to be asking them to look for during the course of the trial rather than the way we always did it, giving it all to them at the end and telling them, ladies and gentlemen, this is what you were supposed to be looking for mm -hmm. during the trial. It's sort of like being in school. Right. And that's a trend that we're seeing really is more substantive instructions up front so they have an idea of what to look for. Have you ever been in a trial, Mr. Day, where you, have you ever asked for more substantive? Well, Yes, and, and the judges are going more and more that way, and I applaud it. I mean, it's, it's crazy to send people down a road without a roadmap. Why would you do that? 
So let's give them a roadmap. The old the argument to the contrary always was, well, we don't know what the jury is going to be charged by way of the law until the end of the case. If that was ever true, it's certainly not true with the advent of the rules of civil procedure. <laughs> I mean, it just you're going to know 95 or 99 percent of the instructions that need to be charged before the jury is impaneled. So if you don't. If the judge doesn't normally, if that, that's not his practice, or it's just he's not doing it right now, would you request it? Yeah, you could just do a special request. Okay. If you have a, a pretrial conference, that's the place to do it. Uh, and most judges now are beginning to understand the importance of giving the jury that roadmap. Our uh, ends of court chapter in Memphis, this was 20 years ago. I think it was the American Board of Trial Advocates who put out a video uh, showing a professor in a classroom setting coming in and saying, okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're, this class is going to be involved. You're not going to be able to take any notes. We're not going to tell you anything about the process or procedure. And at the end, we're going to ask you a series of questions. You can't ask any questions during this class. Uh, and, and so we're going to tell you, give you the test questions at the end. And the same thing we, we have required of juries for, I call it Rule 50, we've done it that way 50 years and, and we don't want to change. And, and it's, uh, it's more of educating the jury now on the front end from the beginning of the process about what your job is, what your task is, ladies and gentlemen. And this is what you're going to have to do at the end of the case. And this is what you need to look for. And so those listening to, to us today, uh, I encourage you, particularly judges, to consider giving some substantive instructions at the beginning along with your preliminary instructions. And by all means, for the lawyers, please ask your judge if your judge doesn't do that. And ask your judge, judge, we'd like for you to give these. And normally the parties can agree, both sides can agree uh, on what preliminary instructions ought to be. Uh, basic negligence instructions about what negligence is or, and compared to fault and what that consists of. In medical malpractice cases, I would give most of the medical malpractice instructions uh, at the end of my preliminary instructions before we start the case, before we start the trial. So what do you do if, especially if you're an attorney, Mr. Day, and one of the instructions just don't seem to fit. You don't like the instruction. It doesn't seem to fit the facts of your case well. It's, you, there's a little nuance to your case. How do you approach a judge about making an adjustment to instructions? Well, either in the pretrial order or by practice in that court, there is a time for submission of what we call special requests for instructions. And the prudent lawyer understands what those deadlines are and then submits to the judge uh, numbered requests, one through whatever it is, that set forth the proposed instruction or a deviation from the pattern instruction. So, for instance, one thing you may do is uh, state the instruction as written in the book and then do, uh, through the, the redlining procedure, show what words you've changed and then attach uh, authority for why you're asking for the change. So you give the judge the law on why the change is necessary. And if you're coming up with an instruction out of whole cloth, that is, it's not in the book, you do the same thing. You give the judge the law. And then sometime before the jury instructions, before there's a charge conference, and the lawyers debate with the judge, have a pleasant conversation about what's in and what's out. And the judge uh, makes the decision, and, and then you've created a record. The lawyers created a record for appellate court review. Judge Childers, which instructions are most commonly negotiated? 
negotiated. Um, you know that that's so spe fact specific that it's it's hard to say. You know, in a in a in a, a, a typical fender bender car wreck case, uh, I, I call it. You know, you're going to give uh, negligence if it's a comparative fault case. Negligence and and proximate cause or legal cause uh, is is what makes up comparative fault. Negligence and legal cause. Um, sometimes in in uh, product liability cases where you've got several different claims, you've you've got uh, you, you've got breach of warranty, uh, you've got strict liability, and that sort of thing. With the more complex cases, you sometimes get a, a lot of debate between the lawyers about whether you should give this charge or that charge, or, or, or what the language should be, or whether it should be different from the pattern charges and that sort of thing. As the dollar value of the case increases and the complexity of the uh, the legal issues increase, so do the number of special requests for jury instructions. Correct. So in a in a products liability case involving one of the automobile manufacturers. There will be 25 or 30 from each party. I've had as many as 50 or 60, no exaggeration, in cases like that that I have to consider. And I make the, I make the lawyers give them to me toward the beginning of the case so I have time during the trial to, to look at those and review those and sort of decide which ones in my mind that I'm probably going to give. And then I have the charge conference at the end after all that proof is in, after we send the jury out. I let the lawyers argue as much as they want to about charges, and then the judge makes the decision, the ultimate decision on which ones to get. So what's your advice to judges on actually giving the jury instructions, like orally versus written versus hand? Like, What are your tips there? I've read lots of articles about juror, about, well, about, about general people in general, their comprehension levels. Uh, people get a, a, absorb and comprehend about 20% of what they hear. So, so I started out reading instructions. In 2002, the Tennessee Bar Association asked uh, 10 of us, 10 judges across the state, and I was one of the judges who participated in a jury reform project, they called it, and we experimented with a bunch of new procedures that had never been used in Tennessee. The most interesting one was letting jurors ask questions of witnesses, uh, use of jury notebooks, um, and several other instructions, the way we select jurors, the voir dire process, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and so um, it, 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 the purpose of it was to get jurors uh, more engaged in the process and, and hopefully have jurors reach a more informed decision where at least they understood the evidence and their duties and came back with a more, I, I start out saying a better decision, but better is in the eye of the, the beholder, whether you're playing for defendant. But a more informed decision, I think, is what everybody wants, where the jury understands the evidence and what their, their jobs, their responsibilities are in the cases. Uh, and, and, and so that was always my goal. The other goal of that was to save the time that jurors who give us, citizens who give us their time in serving on juries. Uh, I told the lawyers at the beginning of the trial, and in complex cases, I always have a pretrial conference to go over the ground rules. And I would tell them, if you've got objections to depositions to take, don't, don't wait until the next morning to tell me, oh, Judge, we've got some objections to take up. Tell me the night before, and we'll either stay late and let the jury go home, or I'll let the jury come in a little later in the morning, and we'll take them up first thing in the morning. So we don't have the jury back in the jury room waiting for the judge and the lawyers to go through all these things where we make more effective use of the jurors' times. And, and I'm telling you, the jurors really appreciate when lawyers and judges do that. Uh, and, and so 
So the, the charge conference and all that sort of thing is, is trying to make it more efficient for the jurors uh, and, and where when they're in the courthouse, they're in the jury box for the most part, hearing the evidence and deciding the cases. And, and to me, again, the instructions, making them more understandable and clear to the jury is a, a very important part of that process. I think it was about 2000 or so that judges in the state started putting the instructions on a screen. If I remember right, wasn't that Judge Turnbull and Judge Maddox over in Cookville who started doing that? They would literally come off the bench and we had the acetate with overhead projectors. The, the, uh, the overheads. Or the, yes. Yeah, the overheads. Yeah, and uh, you, uh, you did that too, didn't well, you? Well, I did. A part of the process from the 2002 experiment, and then about six months, uh, we did it for six months, and then the TBA approached the Supreme Court, and, and most of those new procedures were incorporated into the rules of procedure. They're not mandatory. The judges, they're discretionary. Judges can use them or not, and I continue to use all of the, the instructions, uh, all of the, the, the changes. But what I first did with the experiment, I would give one written copy of the instructions to the jury at the end. I very quickly went to three copies for the jury, and just as quickly I went to one copy for each of the 12 jurors. <laughs> because some people are afraid, they don't read as quickly, or some can't read very well at all, who are embarrassed to want to look at the instructions again, so they have their own copy. And I gave them, uh, at the end of the case, I gave them, at the beginning, a copy of the preliminary instructions in their notebook, and then, at the end, a copy of the final instructions in their notebook, so they could take all that back with them and look at the instructions uh, at the end. And so, so I, 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 I gave them each a copy of the written instructions as I gave them, so they could read through the instructions as I gave them, because the comprehension goes up from 20% from just hearing to it's closer to 50% when they both hear it and read it. Uh, and, and, and then the other part that's hard to accomplish is when the jury gets involved with, it's hard to get involved the jury other than having them read the instructions. But the comprehension level, and then when you multiply that by 12 jurors, you, you have most of the jurors you know, individually can get sort of the whole picture of what happened in a case. So let's talk about the upcoming edition. Fall of 2019, we'll have a new edition of the Civil Pattern Jury Instructions. What sort of changes should we expect? Well, one of the changes that we debated in our, in our uh, meeting uh, this week at the Judicial Conference uh, was a, a new charge on uh, self-represented litigants. We used to call them pro se, but the new term is self-represented litigants. Uh, and to give a charge to the jury about uh, essentially uh, the court will give some leeway to self-represented litigants because they're not trained in the law. But, ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand that the self-represented litigants have to comply with the substantive law just like the other side who has the lawyer does. So it, you, you, you have to be careful about not bending over backwards to be fair to the self-represented person to the point that you're then unfair to the other side. Uh, one of the other things that I will tell you several years ago that we did with the advent of social media, we, the committee came up with a charge costing the jury that you can't consult social media, you can't Google uh, terms that you hear about or evidence that you hear about in a trial, and, and you can't get information outside of what you hear in the courtroom, in the trial. And you have jurors wanting to Google and that sort of thing, and so we had to develop a charge that we give 
at the beginning, I gave it the beginning of the trial and at the end, uh, you, you can't use these sources to decide this case. And you were there, Barbara, for part of the debate at the committee meeting earlier this week. You know, we had a, an issue that came up in the healthcare liability area with a, a recent decision out of the Court of Appeals and a recent Tennessee Supreme Court uh, opinion in the Dedman case concerning collateral, the collateral source rule. And that was a classic example. You got to see something that happens quite frequently where we all agree that we don't know what the law is. So it, that's hard for lay people to understand that that uh, particularly uh, in the common law, but and even more so when the legislature starts to attempt to supplant the common law by adopting legislation. Uh, and because they have to use the English language, things aren't always necessarily clear. We, we have to agree that we don't know what the law is and we communicate that through uh, the comments or the use notes. And we've, we've had lots of discussion and debate, and there is a tension here, but the committee has always pretty much come down on the side of we're not trying to, the committee's not, in, through the instructions, trying to predict what the Tennessee law is. What we try to do is take the opinions from the courts and look at statutes and determine what the current Tennessee law is. If there's not any law on that subject, we try to be careful not to predict what the law is going to be. We try to say what the law is as we understand it through the court opinions, uh, the appellate court opinions and the statutory law. And that's all we try to do. But we've had lots of discussions back and forth about, no, we need, we need to try to predict what the law is to help the, the trial judge and the bar uh, in the state. But we try, we try to be careful not to do that. Well, Judge Childers, Mr. John Day, thank you both for joining us at Tennessee Court Talk. Been a pleasure. Enjoyed it very much, thank you.